welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 59. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. So this week, I've been playing New World, a new MMO coming from Amazon Game Studios. I've also been checking out Marvel's Avengers and another new release called Spellbreak, which is a mage battle royale. I was also really lucky to sit down with Henrik Nieberg from Mojang Studios, developers behind Minecraft, and we spoke about a range of topics like prototyping and the value of audience feedback. So there's a jam-packed show, let's get to it! Welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week. Well, we've had a lot of news in the past few weeks since the last main episode of This Week in Video Games. We've had Mario's 35th anniversary direct from Nintendo, Xbox then came out with their blockbuster announcements about the price of the Xbox Series X, and the reveal of the Xbox Series S2. So check out the podcast feed for more info on that as I go in depth into those stories on the news roundup. So this coming week we also have a PlayStation announcement and showcase coming on Wednesday the 16th of September. So I imagine we're finally going to be getting a price and date for their consoles too and hopefully pre-order information. We're getting closer now to the release of next gen and I couldn't be more excited. So as well as the consoles we've had the announcement of the new Nvidia graphics card with a 3000 series and man... You know, just as everyone was saying consoles, they've now caught up with PCs, Nvidia come in and blow everything out of the water. Even with everything going on in the world right now, these are definitely exciting times to be a gamer. Well, coming up later on the show, I also sat down with Henrik Nieberg from Mojang Studios, creators of Minecraft, and we talked about how their teams have been adapting to remote working, the value of prototyping and getting feedback from the audience early to help make Minecraft be one of the best-selling games of all time. It's a great chat and some really interesting insight into how developers make games in these interesting conditions that 2020 has provided us this year, so please look forward to that interview later on. Well that is enough intro waffle from me, let's get into what I've been playing this week. So over the past few weeks I've been playing a combination of previews and new releases. So I'll start off with New World and this one is coming from Amazon Game Studios and it's a new MMO. I'm pretty new to the MMO space, but this one got its hooks into me right from the start, and I was lucky enough to get into the alpha preview build. It was a little rough around the edges in places, but I played it for about 5-10 to hours, and it really left me with some good impressions. It's coming back for another alpha preview, maybe even a beta in November, so check out Play New World on Twitter for updates if you're wanting to get into the next test. And I'll get into my first impressions of that preview in a little while. Marvel's Avengers also released a fanfare of, well this is better than I thought, with many thinking that it was going to be a complete car crash of microtransactions. It feels like the campaign has won many over, although the endgame does feel a little bit light right now. I played through the campaign and I'll bring you my thoughts on that later on in the show. I've also been playing Spellbreak and this is a new mage battle royale where you've got spells instead of guns and you battle it out with the elements to be the last wizard standing. It's a unique take on the Battle Royale genre and it's free to play, plus available on pretty much every platform, so there's no excuse not to jump in and give it a try. But first of all this week, here is one for the watchlist, and it's coming in Spring 2021. I was lucky enough to try out an alpha preview build of New World from Amazon Game Studios, so let's dive into those first impressions now. (laughs) 
New World is a new MMO from Amazon Game Studios and I got my hands on the preview that ran from the 25th of August until the 4th of September 2020. So New World is the first big PC release to come from Amazon Game Studios and it was originally slated for 2020. However, it's been pushed back to next year based on some early feedback from players. It's probably a good thing since Crucible released and then quickly went back into closed beta and I would imagine Amazon want to make sure that they get this one absolutely right. We start out in the game washed up on a turnum, and this is an island full of a magical mineral that empowers and corrupts that all surrounds it. Dotted all over the map are ancient ruins left behind by a civilization long past. Rather than full on fantasy, New World takes place on Earth and all the characters are human. There's all kinds of weapons in the game from swords, bows, throwing axes and even guns too. The game features an active combat system, so you're going in there with weapons to attack, you dodge and you whack and roll if you get in trouble. The full game promises a big territory capture system too, where masses of players, I think it's 50 versus 50, can battle against each other in huge fights. I didn't get to experience this in the preview, but it's definitely something I'm looking forward to in the full game. As well as PvP, you can also roam around, explore, gather materials and find creatures out there in the wild. There's a huge social element to the game and you can get involved by joining a company. So companies are 50 player groups and they essentially act as guilds and you can roam around taking over territories in the game. The New World Island is split into different territories which contain a settlement and a fort. So during the alpha I had a glimpse of the first settlement where you're taken through a series of tutorials for many of the game's mechanics like fighting, gathering resources, trading and questing. So settlements, they're the main hub of the territory and there you're going to find places to craft items and also player housing too. Forts are what you need to capture if you want to take over a territory and when a company controls a territory you can set the tax rate and organise public projects like local improvements to the fort or the settlement. And it's going to be wise to invest in the settlement's crafting stations so players can create better gear and also you can invest in the fort's defences too. Other companies can declare war on a settlement and a battle is scheduled according to the time set by the defenders. Both attacking and defending companies then recruit armies of 50 to fight for them. So during a battle, the attackers have to capture control points around the fort and then capture a central point. All manner of attacking weapons come into play like siege weapons, turrets and explosive barrels too. If the attackers win, they then take control of the territory, although it's going to be damaged after the battle and the new owners will have a job on their hands to repair and upgrade it. The territory control system certainly sounds like a lot of fun, although in the alpha preview I didn't manage to level up to reach that level of play. But once you get past level 20, you can also buy a house in a territory and the houses act as fast travel points. Ideally, you want to have a fast travel point into a settlement that has good crafting so you can get better gear. If you like the look of a place, you can form a company and try and take the territory over, or you could support a company who's making promises to improve that settlement. The choice really is up to you. As well as the PvP aspect of the game, you may be recruited to help save a settlement from a PvE threat, as monsters do invade settlements also. There's a range of play available in New World that should suit all kinds of players. So the combat in New World is active, so you're going to have to learn when and how to attack with timing and skill. So as you beat enemies, you collect items and XP to help you level up, as in other MMOs. And as you progress the levels in New World, you can add points to base stats. 
As well as leveling up stats like strength, agility, etc, you can master weapons. And the more you use weapons, the more proficient you're going to be with those weapons, and there's a range to choose from. So you can start out with your bog standard sword, but as you quickly progress and level up there's bigger swords, there's throwing axes and there's bows to master also. You can trade weapons at your local settlements and there's also skill trees for weapons too and there are active and passive skills when it comes to weapons and different attack styles open up as you go up the mastery system. As well as the weapon mastery, there's also crafting mastery as well. So you're going to have to learn how to gather wood, and there was definitely a lot of gathering wood in the alpha, that's for sure. And I spent a lot of time chopping down trees and hammering into rocks. It's fairly easy to gather simple materials outside a settlement as long as you have the right tools. So rarer materials are going to be found in the more dangerous parts of the island, and you're going to need to craft higher tier items later on as you level up, as you get into the kind of endgame. The crafting system felt pretty good, not too in-depth or confusing, and as with weapons you can trade materials too in settlements, putting materials up for sale in your local trading post. So that is a really brief overview of the game and some of the systems, but in terms of the alpha, I had a really, really good time with it, you know. I'm new to MMOs, having missed out on World of Warcraft in my younger days, and this is the first MMO I've really been interested in, and it's definitely grabbed my attention in this alpha. So you start out washed up on a beach and immediately you are attacked and you're taken through a battle tutorial. Poor old Captain Thorpe, he lays there in front of me and he's dying and he tells me I have to find a settlement and make allies before he dies with a little bit of a gurgle and a moan. I'm taken through a series of tutorials related to food, fighting and my inventory before I head off my first settlement. Surrounded by washed up ships and the drowned, and these are going to be one of the main PvE enemies in New World, I learn how to fight eat and stay alive. There's a fantastic moment which is very Breath of the Wild where I run up to the top of a hill and I can see my new home in front of me. I'm pretty impressed by the graphics at times with this game, although there are other times it does look fairly basic. I guess it is still an alpha and there's plenty of time to polish and improve the fidelity. Unfortunately though, the corruption has taken over poor old dead Captain Thorpe and he's back in form of my first boss battle. He's a tough old boot with a flaming sword, but I managed to hack and slash my way to victory, rolling out the way of his flaming sword, and he's like a combination of Beric Dondarrion and the Terminator. Once you get past this moment, it's time to meet Watcher Lynch, and he'll happily guide you through a few fetch quests, teaching you how to gather food and materials. After a few of these quests and looting and killing the drowned, together with upgrading some of my skills, it's time to head off to my first settlement. The map is absolutely huge, and going from my little introduction outpost to the huge bustling streets of my first settlement, it's a bit of a shock. There's people everywhere, with Amazon saying there's over a thousand people can join a server at any one time. As this was only an alpha, I'm sure more could be here, but to me it felt really full. But then again, I'm more used to a game like Destiny, where the max player cap in a social space is about 16. So I think I've definitely got much more to learn. Over the next few hours I experienced trading, gathering materials for quests and exploring a huge settlement. The game did feel a little bit rough around the edges, but for the short time I had with New World, I have to say I really, really enjoyed myself. I don't know if this is because I'm new to MMOs and it's just this is what it feels like to experience one. The world felt vibrant and full of life and there's plenty to do with weapons, battles and crafting, it was all really, really good fun. I didn't level up to the point where I could take part in a war or capture another settlement, that is going to have to wait for later. However, what I did experience certainly got its hooks into me and I can't wait to play more.
Well, that's it for my first impressions of the New World preview. And as I said before, that is coming back in November. So you want to keep an eye on the Twitter account. It's at Play New World. And they're going to send out updates. And if you've got a PC and you're into MMOs, I definitely consider giving this one a go. Really, really good fun. I'm looking forward to that full release coming in spring 2021. Well, next up, let's check out my review of the Marvel's Avengers campaign. So Marvel's Avengers is a big blockbuster of a game from Crystal Dynamics and it shows a lot of promise. The single player campaign is currently the standout experience of the game for me, although I'm yet to get into the end game where more missions and levelling up awaits. Kamala Khan's Miss Marvel takes centre stage here with the other Avengers along for the ride in a somewhat confusing game with a mixture of gameplay styles, however it's a game that's got a lot of promise and with a few tweaks could be a fantastic addition to your library. Let's start off with the strongest portion of the game and that is the main campaign. So when you first boot up the game you're given the choice of jumping into the campaign or the Avengers initiative. And I definitely recommend going into the campaign, especially if you're a fan of the MCU. This is a comic book fan's dream of a game with hidden lore and collectibles that you won't want to miss. And the campaign acts as the origin story for Kamala Khan who takes on the name of Miss Marvel after an accident seemingly caused by the Avengers in the opening act. There's a celebration for the Avengers and Kamala Khan's been invited as a superfan and she gets to meet her heroes including Thor, Black Widow, Captain America and Iron Man before the Golden Gate Bridge is attacked. The Avengers run off to help and we're taken through a sequence of events where we can control each Avenger flying through the skies with Iron Man and Thor, smashing and throwing tanks as Hulk and stealth-like hand-to-hand combat with Black Widow. Captain America is seemingly killed off in a huge explosion and at the same time Kamala Khan has been given superhero powers due to an accident or contamination. The Avengers, they're shamed and they go into hiding and we fast forward five years where Kamala Khan is communicating with a resistance. We're all used to the MCU having spent the last five to ten years watching all the movies and cinemas so at first it's a little bit tricky to get Robert Downey Jr's Iron Man or Chris Evans's Captain America characters out of your head when watching this new breed of Avengers. I found it a little jarring during the beta but to be honest I let that go for the main game and it didn't really bother me after about half an hour. What was slightly surprising is how much of this is a Miss Marvel game rather than an Avengers game. For the first five to six hours you're going to be following the Avengers of Kamala Khan very closely as she tries to reunite the Avengers who've gone underground since the accident. Bruce Banner seems depressed and Tony seems to be hanging out in a trailer inside Stark Manor. We haven't seen Kamala Khan on the big screen and this probably helps the game given she's our central focus. We the player are Kamala Khan, the Avengers superfans, wishing we had superhuman powers and fighting alongside our heroes. As you play throughout the main campaign you level up as you go and switch between Miss Marvel and the Avengers with relative ease. One minute you'll be throwing stretchy punches as Miss Marvel and then you'll be flying around in a Mark 1 prototype of Iron Man's suit. The game has plenty of mechanics to wrap your head around, you know fighting is fun and relatively easy, you've got your light attack and your heavy attack as well as a series of special attacks too and all of the characters feel unique which is quite a feat in itself as it must have been a huge amount of work for Crystal Dynamics. Mixed in with the fighting style and the storytelling are the destiny-like mechanics of looting and levelling up. It's a strange mix sometimes, one which I enjoy because I do like loot-based games, however it would be interesting to come into this game fresh without the six years of destiny experience behind me. About a third of the way through the campaign the social hub on your ship opens up and you're introduced to all kinds of vendors, mission givers and cosmetics. 
This is a loot-based game, but interestingly the loot doesn't affect the cosmetics of your character. I can totally understand why this is the case. A large part of games like this is to charge through lower level gear and replace that with higher level gear, but one of the benefits has always been that you see the change it makes to your character. It appears here that the design decision has been taken to maintain the look and feel of each Avenger, so the loot doesn't really have any cosmetic effect. The loot therefore falls somewhat flat in early parts of the game, but I'm going to reserve my final judgement of that for when I get to the endgame. If the loop falls a little bit flat, then the skill trees certainly do not. You know, there's three pages of skill trees, so if you want to dive deep in with the characters and spec into a certain playstyle, then you can. These range from different light attacks, heavy attacks, and range attacks. So Hulk is going to grab bigger slabs of ground from underneath him, and he's going to turn it into an unstoppable machine the more you level up. Which is good, because at the start of the game, he looks like Hulk, but he doesn't really feel very powerful. Iron Man flies and hovers as you would expect, and he's also got three attack capabilities, with his pulsars, his lasers, and his rockets. And this is something I didn't see until well into my playtime with Iron Man, and something I wish I knew earlier, so if you are playing with Iron Man, then be aware that you can switch your damage output mode between those three styles, and do, because his rockets are absolutely awesome. Black Widow is really agile and she's got this grapple on rope that you can attach onto enemies and cause close range damage. She's also got a set of ranged attacks with her pistols and close quarter combat with loads of punches and kicks too. So Miss Marvel is great fun with her stretchy melee attacks and the ability to bend and stretch out of the way of incoming fire and all characters have got their merits and they feel really different which is a massive plus for the game. The single player campaign is good fun and I've seen a lot of positive reaction online. Originally when the game was revealed there was some negative press, however that improved when the first War Table presentation was unveiled by Crystal Dynamics. When the beta came out again the reception fell a little bit flat as there were bugs, particularly on the PC version of the game, which evidently is the platform that I decided to go with for those higher frame rates and the general overall better quality on the visuals. I have to say I haven't seen too many performance issues but there were some frame drops in the very busy areas with lots of enemies but overall I had a relatively bug free experience and this is likely helped by a couple of patches since launch. So I've spoken about one of the strongest features being Kamala Khan, another is the story and the villain in the game. So I'm not going to spoil the villain but again this story hasn't been explored on the big screen so it is quite cool going into this with a brand new story rather than trying to recreate something that's already been shown in the MCU. Even if it does take a little while to get used to the new characters playing Black Widow or Thor, Miss Marvel and the main villain do set this apart in a nice self-contained adventure. It's like its own entry into the Marvel storylines. The campaign itself is roughly 12 hours long and the game could be played and bought just for this element. Yeah, once you get through the campaign the game opens up and the end game is a little bit light at the moment but it's going to take a little bit more time for you to level up all of your Avengers to the current power cap of 50. Once you get there I heard the game opens up even more as you open up all of your abilities and it feels like a brand new game. I'm not there yet though but it does make me want to keep on playing. The campaign features a range of missions from single player stories that focus on a single Avenger to you working together as a group fending off waves of enemies. There's single player crafted missions in the story like sneaking through a park as Kamala Khan and not getting detected by AIM. There's also a really cool mission where you're Kamala and you're running away from a raging Hulk. One of my favourite moments in the campaign is Kamala Khan going through the ship, finding old Avengers memorabilia, and I said it before, you know, if you're a fan of Marvel, then you're going to love this single player campaign at least. Getting to know Kamala Khan throughout the campaign mode was really satisfying and definitely kept me playing on. 
I didn't know too much about the character before this game, and I'm glad I spent time with her going through the missions. Going from watching her geek out in front of the Avengers, and at times she feels really deflated like she's not worthy, and then at other times she's feeling really triumphant in battle, and it all added up to a really enjoyable experience, and one I'd recommend even if you didn't want to continue with that post-campaign. I do want to continue my journey into the endgame, as I find the fighting fun, and there's also the destiny part of me who wants to go and find the exotics and create specific builds for my heroes, and open up all those skill trees and master one or two of my Avengers. There's plenty of positives in the game so far, but there's also some drawbacks too. The game's colour palette overall is a little bit dark and bleak, locations look similar to one another and there's lots of information on the screen to process, and at times it can be quite confusing in big battles. Some of the multiplayer missions feel repetitive and I don't know how engaging they're going to be going into the post campaign and that loot also has warning flags being sent up for me as it's only cosmetic. One of the best things in games like Destiny is getting an exotic that not only feels powerful but makes you look cool too. You know, there's a whole section here on cosmetics where you can customise your Avengers but it's not really quite the same. One of the strengths of these games we like to go back to that you know they really need to feel fun and help you feel powerful to feed that fantasy. I'm having fun for now, over 10 to 15 hours that I've put in, but you know, what's it going to feel like after 100 hours or 500 hours? We do have more characters coming with Hawkeye, and we know about the platform exclusive Spider Man coming to PlayStation sometime in the not too distant future. My impression of the game so far is really contained to the campaign, which is enjoyable and one I would recommend to others. I haven't dug too deep into the post-campaign content and I have to make a judgement on the end game a bit later on. I'll continue to play and I'll bring you my thoughts on that on a later date, but for now, if you're a fan of the Avengers and the Marvel Universe, then I'd definitely consider buying this game. It's not perfect by any means and there are definitely a few rough edges. There's hope for this game though, as these types of games can be improved over time. Thinking about other looters, this probably has had one of the best launches out of all of them. You know, Warframe, Destiny, The Division, Anthem, you know, all of these games had very, very rocky launches. Some died and didn't come back, and some have slowly built them up over time and created dedicated fan bases either through fantastic gameplay or lore. The Avengers has got a head start over these other games as they've got a wealth of stories to draw from from the comics, and this is almost the perfect format for a Marvel game as more can be added over time. Crucially too, the world, the gameplay, the polish can be improved, so overall I'm pretty optimistic over time that this game could establish itself as one of the great looters. It's got a strong campaign and a strong introduction to the game that's for sure, but ironically it's the end game that needs the most work. Well that's it for my review of the campaign in Avengers, and next up I was lucky enough to sit down with Henrik Nieberg from Mojang Studios, creators of Minecraft, and we got into talking about things like remote working, prototyping and the culture at Mojang Studios. It was a really, really good chat, so let's go over to that interview now. Welcome back to This Week in Video Games, and I'm here with Henrik Nieberg from Mojang Studios. Welcome, Henrik. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm doing fine. Thank you. And uh, so how's it been going recently? Uh, obviously, we've got the, uh, the COVID situation. Um, how have you and your teams been doing? Uh, well, crazy times, right? <laughs> from one day to the next, we all went home, and then we stayed home. So that's where we are. Home. <laughs> 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 but also not home because we're all online so we're all together anyway it's weird 
kind of going home, that really must sort of um, kind of impact things. How was that sort of transition from kind of working all together in an office? I imagine you probably have like collaborative spaces and... Yeah, yeah we were heavily uh, optimized for face-to-face working. <laughs> so uh, that was rather like a jarring move. But it worked better than I thought. Um, I have this hypothesis that kind of got validated. <laughs> My hypothesis is that distributed teams works fine if everyone is distributed. But if only some people are distributed and some are in the same room, then it gets really weird because you're in different places. Some people are in the physical room while other people are in the digital room. And then you get disconnect. But if everyone's in different places, then you're all in the digital room. And then suddenly you're all together again. Uh, so I found it worked surprisingly well, actually. I was wondering, like, because uh, I work in a big distributed team across a, a across a, a kind of number of countries as well, and one of the challenges that we found is kind of maintaining that um, kind of great culture. And how have you sort of, you know, you can kind of wander over to someone's desk and sort of say, yeah, yeah hey, how's it going? Or take a little walk and have a break by the coffee machine or something like that. But have you added any sort of new team ceremonies into the mix at Mojang? Um, well, yes and no. Uh, like we, to address the culture question, um, I totally agree. That's a huge important part of culture, that kind of informal, spontaneous conversation. I think we had a pretty strong culture before COVID sent us all home. Uh, and that has helped us a lot. If we built a new team from scratch, under these circumstances, it would have been a different story entirely, I think. It would have been harder. So we're kind of living off of that already strong culture, you know, even now as we're home. Uh, the longer time this would continue, the harder it's going to get, I think. We are trying to create some of that bantering, you know, spontaneous conversation stuff. Um, the results are mixed. <laughs> we have like a fika, you know, the Swedish term fika? Yeah, yeah. Right, this kind of coffee break thing uh, every day at like 3 p.m. Um, maybe it varies from individual to individual. Personally, I find that hard because so much of our conversation is over video conference. So at 3 p.m., the last thing I want to do is go to a, another video conference, even if it's just a social bantering one. Um, so personally, I, I, that doesn't really work for me, but I think it maybe works for some other people. Um what does work though, I find, is we have like virtual rooms which we set up. Like we call them task force rooms or focus rooms. We use different words for it. But it's like an always open meeting in a sense. Um, and when you go in that room, you're not in a meeting, you're 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 in the room. <laughs> so let's say I'm working on one feature area. Anybody who's interested in that feature area could just pop in. Or maybe they're not interested in that feature area, but they want to come by and say hi because they know that I am going to be, going to be sitting there. <laughs> so people drop in and drop out out of these rooms sometimes. And that I find works really nice because it creates the exact same sensation of I'm sitting and coding and then somebody walks by the hallway and, you know, with a coffee in hand and starts talking to me about something. It's, it's really interesting because I, I saw... I saw you put out a, a tweet and you're interested in uh, maybe running a, a course and putting it kind of inside Minecraft because <laughs> um, we, we spend quite a lot of um, we, we spend quite a lot of time in these virtual worlds like in MMOs and kind of hanging out and things like that. Yeah. Do you see something in the medium sort of term future or the, or the distant future where, where we could kind of we, we could translate that to learning perhaps? I, th I think so, definitely. 
Um, it depends a bit on the context, though. Uh, like, as soon as you are in, let's say, Minecraft, I find that you get distracted by the game itself. You start doing stuff. You start, you know, chasing each other or throwing potatoes at each other or building something <laughs> or running off or whatever, you know. And the <laughs> night comes and zombies show up and you got to build a shelter. It's like just stuff <laughs> happening. So it's really great for social kind of, um, like, not so difficult work together, right? Just informal bantering. But if we're actually going to have a meeting and we actually need to figure something out, then I find that an environment like that, as it is now, is kind of distracting. For example, we want a surface to be able to draw on. And uh, I'm a huge fan of a tool called Miro, which is just an online whiteboard kind of thing. Um, and without that, we wouldn't be able to work effectively. We need we need to be able to gather around something that we're drawing and right. We, we, need, we basically need a whiteboard. Um, mm. And there is none in Minecraft. <laughs> If there was, that would be a different story, I think, mm. at least for the kind of work that I often do. But when it kept, the thing about the courses, I teach courses around like agile product development. And in that context, there are some places where I, where I want to do physical exercises. We do things, we build something together or solve a challenge in a room physically. And Minecraft is perfect for that because if we're not in the same room, we're just staring at each other over a video conference. How do we create the sensation of we're working together to solve a problem? Minecraft is perfect for it. So mm -hmm. I think it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. That's that's fantastic. I wanted to talk a little bit more about your kind of processes um, at Mojang. And uh, I wonder if you could sort of pull back the curtain a little bit. Like uh, I, I saw a really fantastic video that you that you put out recently, a sort of how you kind of like um, come up with ideas at Mojang. I was really interested in um, how you go from like a, a small concept to kind of taking something through to production. We don't have a very formalized process for it. Um, and I like that actually. I find that when you put too much structure over on innovation, it can sometimes kill innovation. Um, so people are coming up with ideas all the time and um, are kind of empowered and encouraged to, to explore those ideas. And the best way to explore an idea I find is prototyping. So you can stand there and talk, right? Uh, but the idea only becomes really kind of useful when you have some kind of prototype to, sh to show what it might look like. And also in your own mind, when you have an idea, when you start prototyping it, that's when it becomes, you know, the the, the, the questions start popping up. They're the interesting questions. Mm. So we, we try to encourage that. We have every Friday, we used to call it Gaming Friday. Now I think we call it Gaming and Prototyping Friday, where basically the afternoon is pretty much reserved for random prototyping. Um, not in any structured way. Some people would just play games or do email or whatever, but but that is a space we try to not put other meetings in so that people can just randomly explore ideas. Then in, in my case, since I'm on the gameplay development team, our job is to build and design features in the game. So for us, it's extra important since that is actually our job description. Like when we're making a, a an update, like we release new updates once or twice per year and each update has a, some theme. So last update was updating the nether dimension, right? And an early update was update aquatic where we updated the oceans and made those more interesting. So there's always some kind of theme. And once we've set a theme, and then we try to reserve a period of time, like a few weeks, uh, maybe even longer, where our focus is really just prototyping. So we're in that kind of stage right now, actually, for the next major update uh, for, for Minecraft. So then it's a lot of prototyping, a, a lot of brainstorming and yeah, we have this high-level plan for what's going to be an update, but that plan is quite subject to change as we prototype things and see what they actually might look like. Mm. 
I know as well you're you're a big fan of kind of game jams. You you mentioned the kind of um, prototyping uh, that you do on Fridays. Um, could you tell us a bit more about kind of game jams and uh, the value that um, they provide you and uh, the teams the teams around you? Uh, yeah, Mo- Mojang has in the past been participating more in like open game jams, public game jams. We haven't done that so much recently, which I which I kind of wish we would. So I hope we can get more into that in the future. The game jams we've had have been kind of mostly internal lately, uh, but I find them hugely, hugely useful. Um, there's different ways of doing them. Some cases it could be like a whole week with the whole company. In other cases, it's more like um, a feature jam or a problem solving mm. jam. For example, we had a jam recently where, you know, we picked one problematic area in Minecraft. We're like, okay, let's jam that problem. And then it was opt-in. So anybody who wanted to can just join that one day of focusing on that one problem. And then people would just explore tons of different solutions to that problem. So both open-ended jams where you do whatever you want to pretty narrow focus jams where you focus on one type of problem. I think they're they're just really useful, all, all, all of them. Plus there's like a, a team building effect, right? When I'm jamming, mm-hmm. I'm probably working with different people than I normally work with. So f- new connections form, which is really useful. Plus, I maybe get an insight into some other part of the tech stack or some other, you know, way of working, etc. Yeah, it's really valuable across discipline. If you can get um, test engineers working with uh, other types of engineers and the, yeah. the UX designers, and um, you know, even product and uh, project manager. Project management can oh, yeah, get it's great. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also stressful. Jams can be quite stressful because there's this kind of unspoken um, need to want to have to to demo something, right? You want to. Yeah. <laughs> so if you just jammed and didn't finish anything anything to show, you're going to be feeling kind of like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think they're great, but to 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 a certain limit, right? Um, so do you like to get involved yourself? Oh yeah, definitely. If there's a jam, I'm in <laughs> every time. <laughs> And, um, well, it's a really, really exciting kind of time at the moment. We're, we're on the cusp of this. Uh, I feel like we're on the sort of this sort of um, big hill at the moment, looking out into this technological landscape with the new consoles kind of just coming around the corner. Um, we have um, NVIDIA announcing all the, like, really, really new powerful hardware that's going to go into our into our PCs. Um, is there anything in that kind of portfolio there that kind of really excites you about about the future? Um, when it comes to that, I would say no. <laughs> to be blunt, um, I, I don't get excited by new consoles. I don't get excited by, by stronger graphics cards because you get prettier games. You get more <laughs> complex games. It doesn't make them more fun. The most fun games I've seen, they work on like really old machines as well because the game concept is fun and you don't need the pretty graphics. <laughs> so yeah, like with, with Minecraft, I sometimes um, play with shaders. Oh yeah. Uh, and I have a pretty powerful gaming PC now that I saw it. So now I could get these real, make Minecraft look really beautiful. And then for the first 30 minutes, I'm like, my God, this is so cool. I'm taking screenshots and sending to my friends. One hour later, I've just forgotten about it and I'm just playing the game. And then, and then if I accidentally shut off that shader, I wouldn't notice it until after a while. I'm like, oh, yeah, the shader. So I think there's a difference between being impressed by something versus actually having more more fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the things that I noticed from the sort of um, PS3 and Xbox 360 generation and that leap to kind of like PlayStation 4 and Xbox One was the kind of more open world, um, the more kind of like playing together. And I think that the technical... The, 
the technological leap sometimes can be can sort of bring in uh, more players together. I know there's been that scenario for many many years on PC. Yeah. Um, but um, one of, one of the games that I'm um, a big fan of is uh, Destiny, and uh, bringing kind of a number of players in a shared kind of open open space. I thought that was yeah. a really fantastic leap, and that's something I'm quite looking forward to with the with the new. It, it's it's almost yes, people can demonstrate great new graphics and yeah. um, you know amazing graphs that look you know um twice or three times as it's just graphs the... right <laughs> it's like who cares exactly <laughs> but it's it, it's fun. almost the uh the hidden features that we haven't yet discovered um yeah. i'm really really excited about but like for example i i don't know about destiny but is there anything that like do you need a new console for that or would you have been able to play that with a five-year-old pc i so at the, at the time i believe the consoles, um, the introduction there of that new technology sort of allowed uh, allowed that sort of landscape to form. It, it probably would have been possible on a five-year-old PC, to be honest. Because <laughs> the technology is called internet, right? That yeah. We're talking about. Yeah. And and multiplayer internet games have been around for how many years? <laughs> so sometimes it feels like we're taking something old that already existed and we're just putting it in a shiny new box and pretending it's something new. <laughs> You're absolutely right. So going back to your point, it's all about kind of the fun and finding the fun. And and Minecraft is, you know, um, it's the runaway leader, the most successful game kind of ever, ever made. And you, you mentioned all the, the prototyping. Quite simply, I mean, how do you go about finding the fun uh, at Mojang? I like that phrase, finding the fun. To me, that's a bit of a mantra in game development. Um <laughs> Because that's really what it boils down to. Sometimes in games, people get lost in the plan, right? Oh, the plan is to ship these features by that date. And somewhere along the way, they forgot that, oh, wait a sec, it's about finding the fun. And this plan was just a hypothesis, right? <laughs> um, I think a really important success factor for Minecraft is the fact that we ship every week. Hmm. Uh, we ship these snapshots. Um, and it's snapshots are not stable necessarily. They're playable. They normally don't crash. But they are going to be buggy and incomplete, Yet we have millions of people playing on the snapshots, and that feedback is vital because, like every time we design a feature, we have all these ideas for what makes it fun, right? And then we prototype it and we test it like mad, mm. alone and with people around us. And then we're like, "Oh, the fun was over here. It wasn't quite over here." And we change it a little bit, and like now we found the fun. Great. Uh, I'm not even nearly finished with the feature, but let's ship what we have. I'll put it in this week's snapshot. And inevitably, we get surprised by what people do with it. Mm. And it turns out that the fun, again, wasn't where we thought it was. <laughs> so finding the fun to me is all about shipping early and often and getting that real feedback directly from player to developer. And how how do you manage that? Um, I, I know um, working with um, engineering teams, test teams, UX teams, and it's sometimes you really you have to negotiate quite hard to, to be able to release it early and often um, because th there may be a contingent who wants um, they say, Oh, it's not ready. You know, it, we, can't, yeah. we can't, we can't put that out because it hasn't got this feature. Um, what would you, you know, if, if someone sort of came to you with that point, how, how would you sort of um, navigate that one? I think that's where culture comes in. In some game companies I worked with, there is a strong resistance to, oh no, we can't ship this because the feature is not finished yet. and Or even secrecy. We want to keep it secret until it's all done. Then we can present it as this shiny new elephant. 
Mm. Of course, by then you don't know if it's a fun elephant, and you know you'll probably be surprised. But uh, so some companies have that cultural bias, and it's hard to push back against it. It's possible, but it's it's it takes a bit of effort. With Mojang, I find it's kind of the opposite. The cultural bias is towards shipping and learning, even if it's not finished. I think that's just baked into the culture because of years of experience of seeing how important that feedback is. So it's better to ship something that is embarrassingly incomplete and get that feedback and use that feedback to ship something that is beautiful and complete by the time we get to the actual release. So, but yeah, there is always that tendency um, to want to wait and finish it. I, f- I feel that personally when making a feature, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I've only done 10% of what I want to do with it. Maybe I should wait before shipping it. But what we notice is, you know, there is going to be a snapshot every week. It's a cadence. It's something we ship either way. Mm. So if we don't put stuff in the snapshot, it's going to be the most boring snapshot in the world. It's going to be three bug fixes, and that's it. And then we're, our community gets disappointed, and we're not learning anything. So I think that creates a kind of a bit of a pressure to, you know what, maybe I should put this early version of this feature in there just so that the community has something to chew on and give me feedback on. Plus the fact that since we're all doing this all the time, it doesn't feel so bad. If I shipped something and it was kind of crappy and I got feedback, this is this is kind of crappy, it's not like you know a big moment of shame because that's happening all the time. <laughs> so it's just business as usual. Okay, this was kind of crappy. Let's learn why it was crappy. Let's make it better next week. And then that's fine. And and even our players, that's that culture stretches even to our player community. The people playing the snapshots are used to them being, you know, snapshots. So they don't expect them to be complete. So this, so they're not gonna like get angry us get angry at us and tell us that that tell us that Minecraft sucks just because we put out a feature that was half baked in a snapshot. Um, that's a yeah, that's 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 a fantastic thing. So I know there's a um, one of the ceremonies you have in kind of agile development is like a sprint demo, and this this yeah. is almost like a you're taking that sprint demo out exactly. to the out to the audience. So we don't do internal sprint demos really, because uh, every snapshot is the demo. <laughs> yeah. We do internal demos for prototypes that we haven't yet shown the community, but that's about it. That's brilliant. That's a brilliant insight into the inner workings of Mojang. So thank you, Henrik. Um, and uh, I know also we've got coming up uh, Minecraft Live on yeah. uh, October the 3rd, I believe. And, yes, that's uh, correct. So that must be super exciting for you. And what's what's uh, what's on the agenda um, there, if you can talk about any details? Yeah, I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil everything, right? <laughs> but a high level, I guess, is there's we're gonna talk about what we're doing, what we're working on, um, and there's gonna be some highlights from the Minecraft community. What what what's our community up to? Um, and there's gonna be a mob vote, so people can part, you know help vote what's the next mob gonna be in Minecraft. And so yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff happening. Fantastic. And uh, so, how can people kind of get? I, I know. Um, w- you were thinking about having a um, a live event in person, which uh, 2020 has put a bit of a scupper to. Yeah. Um, how how can people get involved in Minecraft Live uh, if they want to get involved? Um, you Google Minecraft Live, and that takes you to <laughs> minecraft.net slash live, I think. And then uh, there is a little introduction video. And then exactly how you join, I don't know, honestly. <laughs> But it's probably written up there somewhere. That's all good. So, yeah, folks out there, keep your eyes out yes. on uh, October the 3rd. October uh, 3rd. Yes. Awesome. And after that, we can be less secretive about what we're working on, which I appreciate a lot. So I prefer to be uh, open. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
I wanted to shift a little bit away from um, Mojang and Minecraft onto you, Henrik. Um, All right. So how, how did you originally sort of get into the games industry? Uh, I just totally stumbled into it, I guess. Um, <laughs> there was never really a plan. I've always liked games. Like, I like playing games. So if someone would have asked me, like, do you want to work in the games industry? I would have said, hell yes. But there never was any, you know, career plan on my part. Um, I was a consultant. I was like a coder, contractor, coding for food. No, coding for money, for food. <laughs> but, uh, but then I, I gradually morphed into entrepreneurship where I was starting IT companies. And then I gradually morphed into leadership because I suddenly had teams and people around me. And I realized I should probably be a trying to build an organization instead of being bogged down in code. Um, so then I need to learn leadership and, and how does that work and organizational you know, design and stuff like that. And then that morphed into coaching because I started writing books and articles around that kind of stuff. And then people would call me and say, hey, can you come and help us you know, sort out our development process? And then I was suddenly a consultant doing that kind of stuff. So I was bouncing around to different types of companies. But I got to a point where you know, I was doing good. Like I had more clients than I could take so I had to prioritize and that's a good problem to have yeah um, so I had to prioritize and I would prioritize companies that I found were interesting where I would learn um, and often game companies are interesting they build interesting stuff and they often have quite interesting technology and interesting cultures so I generally tend to prioritize those clients and then of course when you get into an industry you get to know people within that industry and then suddenly you know someone switches to another company and then they call right so it's like this little you know, pond with the same people moving around between companies. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I totally just stumbled into it. And um, I imagine there might be a, a few people out there listening, and maybe they're engineers, and um, or maybe they're in different discipline, like the test discipline or the UX discipline. That they're wondering about leadership, um, and maybe wanting to take that sort of step up. Um, what would you, um, what what advice would you give them, or what would you recommend in sort of um, taking those steps? Well, if you want, if you're working, if you're not working as a leader, but you want to start working as a leader? Yeah, like, much like yourself. Right. Uh, wow, that's 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 a good question. So like I mentioned, I never planned to do it. I stumbled into it. So maybe that's not a good strategy to just hope to stumble. But <laughs> um, there is something I find very useful, which is, and there's a fancy word for it, which I forget. Um, but envisioning what you want. Like really sitting down and thinking about what what do I want? What what is my ideal perfect future? And then you pretend you're already there. And you sit down and you write it down. You you describe a day in your life in that perfect world. And what starts happening is is quite interesting because once you have that clear in your mind, especially if you start talking to others about it, like this is where I want to be, it's like the universe starts conspiring to help you a little bit. And I don't think it's because of some metaphysical nonsense. I think it's just because if you have this vision in your head, I want to become a leader or I want to become whatever, uh, you know, a great designer of products. Or once you have that picture in your head, you will unconsciously start looking for that. You will look for those opportunities. You might suddenly remember someone you met last week who worked at some company and then you might want to have a coffee with them. Or you might remember some article you saw on the internet or you might just overhear a conversation over lunch. You're just tuning your personal search filter towards that and it'll increase increase the odds of it happening does that make any kind of sense at all yeah for sure sort of visualizing where where you want to be and then uh taking that step so in the example of leadership um if you really have that mental mindset that i am a great leader 
even though you're not working as a leader, what's most likely going to happen is you're going to start stepping up unconsciously. Some problem happens in your team. You might suddenly step up and try to help the team solve it or, or maybe escalate it to someone. Or maybe you start you know, reading uh, articles or, or watching YouTube channels on leadership. You just start doing things, asking those kind of questions, talking to those kind of people. And then before you know it, someone's like, hey, can you help me uh, you know, run this project or, or can you organize this event? Or small steps, right? But then it, mm. over time, people will notice that, hey, this person seems interested in this leadership thing and seems to be passionate and doing a good job. So maybe I'll, I'll offer him this position. Um, so at least that's throughout my whole career. That's what I see what happens. You have an idea for what you want to do and you really think about it, make it clear. And then things start conspiring to help you a little bit. <laughs> no guarantees. I offer no guarantees, but, <laughs> but, but what this will do is improve the odds. I'm pretty sure. I've, um, I'm, I've been lucky enough to uh, see you talk uh, at a conference myself, and uh, one thing I've noticed, um, your your illustrations, uh, you, you have wonderful illustrations in your in your talks. Do you do, you do them yourself? Uh, I actually do. I, I like to draw. <laughs> and uh, I know you're I know you're quite a big advocate of um, visual thinking, um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about um first of all what that is and sort of how that kind of helps you maybe break down problems or in your kind of daily daily life um yeah visual thinking to me is a habit more than anything else a habit that i've had as far as long as i can remember so maybe it's just different depending on your personality but for me i cannot think unless i'm also visualizing it's just how my brain works uh so whenever i'm trying to solve a problem i need to have an notebook in front of me drawing pictures Whenever I'm in a workshop and we're trying to talk about something, I'll always almost inevitably be at the whiteboard drawing whatever we're talking about or whatever options we're evaluating or whatever solutions we're talking about. It just happens automatically for me. Uh, however, what I've noticed is that it actually doesn't only help me, it helps others. Because if we're trying to understand a problem and I manage to create a good picture of that problem and the options that we're evaluating, suddenly the room gets more focused. Um, so I've just noticed that, and then I've started taking advantage of it shamelessly. <laughs> so things like, okay, we're four teams working on a product together, and we're stumbling over each other. But what if we just take a big wall here and make that wall show what are our priorities? What are we working on? Who's working on what? Um, what are the constraints involved? Are there any dates here? Um, any dependencies? Just visualize whatever seems to matter. Make that visible on the wall. And then gradually people tend to that becomes like a center of gravity for the project. People gather around that wall and they start adding stuff to it and changing it. And then it becomes like a shared context for everybody. And then it's like everybody just becomes smarter. They make better decisions. They, It's almost like magic. So yeah, I find visualization to be fantastically useful in almost any context. That's, that's one of the sort of challenges in the remote kind of space that we're operating in um it, it's great when you're working with a team and you you have a wall like you say you can you can put slogans up like you say yeah. you can map out dependencies or hey you know light bulb kind of area for for ideas and yeah th things like that that that's one of the things um that i've been missing it recently is that sort of shared shared space that you can gather yeah. around i don't know if you've um had any Kind of solutions to that uh, 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 Mojang, or if you're still sort of um, uh, investigating that uh, uh, replacement. Say, uh, we found the solution within a day, <laughs> <laughs> and and we I mentioned Miro. Um, it's it is the wall for us. Yeah, 
it's just like, and what surprised us was, like, I've always been a very strong advocate for physical, just using the walls. Mm. And I haven't found any kind of tool that can get anywhere near competing with that. But since we became distributed, we had to. And what surprised me was that in some cases, it even works better with a digital version than a physical version, which I never would have thought I would say. Um, and the reason is because, like, with a physical wall, I became a constraint. Um, because I like to, you know, let's say we're going to put up, like, a, a, a picture of our work process. And we're going to have columns and sticky notes and arrows. That is a certain skill set to create those visualizations. Mm. It takes a bit of, you know, art skill, just a little bit. Like, maybe just, you know, I'm use a certain type of pen, add some shading, paper, scissor, tape, when to use paper, when to use cardboard, just little, you know, basic techniques to make physical artifacts. And it's not a, it's not rocket science, but it is it is a, a, a skill. And some people, honestly, most people don't really have that interest. So that means that if I wasn't there, you know, putting up this wall chart, then nobody else would really do it. Um, but with digital tools, it's easier. For example, if I have the physical board and I want to, you know, let's say we decide to reprioritize our features. We've got to move, swap two columns, right? That doesn't take skill, but it takes a bit of work. It's going to be 10 minutes of, you know, uh, uh, scissors and tape after the meeting to move the things, right? It's fine. It's not a problem, but it is 10 minutes of work. Uh, with a digital tool, you know, drag drop, right? Um, or if I want to make a copy of something and make it a little bit different, or if I want to just make the wall bigger, I can't make the wall bigger in a physical room, mm. right? But I can do it in a digital room. So I've noticed that we're using visualizations even more effectively than before now that we're kind of in this digital environment. But the reason for it is because we're using a tool that is not trying to drive us to do to follow any kind of process. It is just a whiteboard with mm. lines, pens, and stickies. And there's lots of other tools that do that as well. Um, so that, 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 that's been a, a, a huge insight for me. There is still one downside, though, and that is that with a physical board, you can put it in a space so everybody walks past it, right? Yeah. So it becomes a natural gravitation point. With the digital ones, you don't get this for free, right? You can make a nice board, but you can't put it somewhere where people are going to walk past it. So you can get that effect indirectly if you have recurring meetings in front of that board. Mm. So each team has their daily stand-up, right? And they have their team board. Because they gather in front of their board every day, that's the equivalent of the board being on the wall, always visible. So we have other boards like that. We have a high-level board, which we call the, the dashboard, which shows us the high-level kind of what's going on with the whole release. And we have dashboard reviews every week in front of that board. And they're opt-in. Whoever wants can show up. But a lot of people do show up because they find that that's an interesting you know, little workshop where they learn what's going on and can influence decisions happening. And because we meet in front of that board every week, it has become, you know, a thing. It is visible. It is kind of like the equivalent of it is up on the wall in the kitchen. <laughs> mm. I've, I've also seen some people put things like that as their kind of like Zoom background. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's an option. I mean, I, I think ideally every person in their in their work from home setup would have a couple of screens on the wall. Yeah. Where we would agree what's going to be there, always visible. Yeah. But I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> 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 it's it, it certainly has posed um an interesting challenge over the last sort of six months or so um because everyone is doing it we we've i feel like we're taking two three four steps ahead yeah. in the future and it's been really sort of sped up yeah um and it'll be an interesting um 
you know when you know when this all this all this blows over and uh, we if it does but it'll be interesting going back to uh, we'll, we'll be we'll be going into the next step yeah uh, which, which will be some kind of i guess hybrid, right? like, yeah exactly it'll be a hybrid model because uh, there's 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 definitely value in what we do and how we do it now and i i think with you know with both situations um either working all in the same place or all working from home there's pros and cons to yeah. each approach and i think it's it, there's we've got a fantastic opportunity to sort yeah. of cherry pick the the best of those elements and maybe mash them together in some grand scheme <laughs> yeah i'm actually i'm both uh, both excited and a little bit worried and stressed over what's going to happen when we come back to the office yeah because like just a very specific example of our our dashboard right this big thing that used to be on the wall it was like this you know five meter long mega board showing everything that's that's going on right right and what's the minimum lovable product for our next release what is the priorities what's the status for each platform for each it just it was just this wonderful picture of what's going on and when we went distributed we immediately converted that to miro and it looks the exact same it's just literally the same actual design even the same colors and lines and everything but digital and it works fine almost even better because it's easier to for everyone to see right on a physical board if three people are standing in front of something the others can't see because there's a body in the way right mm. but here anyone can just zoom in and see what's going on so it's great what's going to happen when we come back i'm like i don't know i don't think we're going to go back to building up the physical version because we're so spoiled now with a digital one where you can infinitely zoom and copy paste and move stuff around but then on the other hand what are we going to do with the dashboard reviews are we all going to just stay at our desk and put on headsets and stare at the screen and have our our dashboard review or are we going to have a whole wall full of digital screens and is that going to cut it is that going to work so this yeah I've, I've no idea how we're going to keep that sense of effectiveness which we have now once we're back in, in the office for that yeah. particular thing you're, you're obviously really busy working on the the next major release for Minecraft, and really, really looking forward to hearing more about that on um, October the third. Yeah. Um, with all the kind of building of of games, how about playing games? Do, do you get to play anything in your spare time at all? I make time for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I have four kids at home, and they all love playing games. So uh, that's my excuse to be the gamer dad. <laughs> What's uh, what's what's something that you like to um, either play on um, on your own or, or with the kids? Um, I tend to binge on a game for like a few weeks, and then I would binge on some other game. So it depends on different periods, right? But typically, Minecraft would be something I binge on for a while. Like I would play Minecraft every evening with my friends for like a few weeks, and then I would suddenly get more interested in like. Quite often, engineering games, like geeky engineering games, like Factorio or Satisfactory or Oxygen Not Included. Um, somehow, I just like those kind of games. But other periods, I'll be like playing GTA or Civilization or Stardew Valley. It really depends on my mindset. Do I want tricky problems to solve? Do I want brain-dead entertainment? Mm. Uh, the needs differ for different periods. Um, also, in terms of... You know, do I just want to sit alone and be an introvert and just play a game and turn off the world? Sometimes that's what I need. In other cases, it's being social. I'm playing games with my kids and we're, you know, like uh, playing, you know, Rocket League or something. <laughs> and the the landscape for games now is 
is there's a there's literally a game a genre for for everyone and it, it's um, amazing like i really i really i really love that in the past it felt like oh it's just yet another shooter yeah or it's yet another rts that is the same same as something else but with a minor change of colors you know but now it's like there's all these unique concepts being created all the time which is really interesting there's uh there's even sort of bass fishing games which you can <laughs> <laughs> yeah not quite a replacement for the real thing uh, yeah. i don't think <laughs> it's funny <laughs> Well, but that reminds me, it's something that you mentioned using games as a context for uh, other types of collaboration. Yeah. I just had a flashback. Uh, we have a Vive, a VR set at home, which is really oh, yeah. amazing. Um, and one of the games that popped up like a year ago or so, or maybe two years ago, was Star Trek. And um, you would put on your headset, your Vive VR thing, and suddenly you're sitting in like in the crew of, of a spaceship. <laughs> and and you're it looks almost like realistic right? I'm, I'm sitting there i'm looking around I, I can see my hands i got my console in front of me and i'm the navigator someone else is the you know whatever um handling the weapon system someone else is the captain people i've never seen before but when i look at them they are a character in this game and we are shouting at each other cursing and pressing buttons and trying to collaborate to get the damn reactor charged in time for the whatever <laughs> and it's just instant collaboration they're, they're, they're the I got up the call. Can you send a connection link? Oh, can you hear me? Can you see me? There's none of that. Just put on the headset and just boom, I'm now flying a ship. And I'm like, wow, imagine doing that for just a meeting, right? Yeah. You just go in and, and we're all sitting there around the table. We have our whiteboard and we have this and we have that and we have our latest product prototype and it's just boom right there. And I'm kind of surprised it hasn't really happened yet. Um, so that's one of the things that I think will happen in the future, but we're not there yet. <laughs> Yeah, I hope. It, I guess the, the price point for VR would probably have to come down a fair amount, or easy, easy, e to be sort of easily accessible. But I definitely like the idea of injecting fun in kind of um, in meetings or or something like yeah. that, or, or, or team building exercises as well. You know, oh, get, yeah. on the, get on the Starship Enterprise and uh, yeah. uh, launch it. So yeah. But you, but you also get these other options, like if I'm sitting in a VR setting and we're going to examine the latest product product prototype sitting on the table, I can shrink myself to the size of a beetle and walk around inside the prototype and examine some part of it. <laughs> um, and all these silly things, like suddenly oh, I might just turn myself into a unicorn because I feel like it, or just yeah, get all these funny things going on, which could be distracting, but also fun. And my, I think... Um, Price point, I, I don't think that's a constraint considering how much money companies spend on other things, computers and, and just the, like buying a VR is, is the cost of one flight to a conference if you include the hotel, right? So price is not the constraint, at least for business use. However, I think convenience is. So if I, like today, I would have to wear this thing on my head and I can't wear that for hours. I'd get sweaty and, you know um grumpy <laughs> plus when i have that thing on i can't see my my you know i can't type effectively yeah uh, or you just get limited in all kinds of ways um so yeah i think the ergonomics of vr is probably the biggest constraint it feels like there's something in there for kind of uh, a collaboration tool or collaboration environment waiting to be uh yeah. wait, waiting to be invented it's almost like yeah. a kind of yeah, the next the next step. But yeah, yeah. That's, it sounds really fun. <laughs> well, Henrik, 
I've, I've taken up loads of your time today. Thank you so much for um, talking to us on This Week in Video Games. Really, Thank you. Really, really appreciate it, and uh, I always enjoy our conversation, so thank you. Yeah, same thank here. I really enjoyed it. So. <laughs> and, uh, well, good luck. Um, it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate with uh, the upcoming release for Minecraft. Um, really, really looking forward to seeing what you've got, and I'm going to be there on October the 3rd, cool. uh, 2020, for Minecraft Live. But good luck right. with that. Okay, and, thanks uh, a lot. Have thank a nice you. one. Well, that was me there talking to Henrik Nieberg from Mojang Studios. And thank you once again, Henrik. Really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on This Week in Video Games. Good luck for the upcoming Minecraft Live and the next release of Minecraft. So next up, I've got my first impressions of Spellbreak, and this is a new Mage Battle Royale. So let's go over to that one now. The Spellbreak is a new free-to-play battle royale, but the twist this time is everyone is a mage. Rather than shoot guns, everyone's got spells in various classes. It's fast-paced, it feels good, and it's left a really good first impression on me in my first few hours playing the game. Spellbreak pretty much came out of the blue, initially announced during one of the summer presentations, and it's come out on pretty much every platform. I believe it's been in early access for about two years and the first release is available now and it's free. You know, similar to other battle royales, you fly into a big map, either solo or in a squad, and it's a battle to the death with the last mage or team standing. As you're a mage, you don't need guns, you know, this is all about different gauntlets that you can collect and then combine with secondary elements. When you first boot up a match, you get to choose which is going to be your primary element. You can choose from fire, ice, wind, earth, electricity and toxicity. You've got two attacks from your primary element, you've got light and heavy, and then you have to run around the map looting chests to build up your armory and defences before jumping into battle. A nice feature of the game is the combination of elements, so if you start out as a fire mage but you equip a wind gauntlet as your secondary, you can then create fire tornadoes. If your main is toxicity and you create a gas cloud and your secondary is ice, then you can freeze that toxic cloud to create cover. The combinations of elements, they're pretty much endless, and when you throw in a whole team into that equation, then you can have some very powerful team build capabilities. There's other gear on the map too, so you can pick up health potions, shields and boots and gauntlets. You can collect runes that give you special abilities, like invisibility or a teleport. The gear comes in uncommon, common, rare, legendary and epic, and that is a really similar system to other games, so there's instant familiarity there. Spellbreak takes advantage of the vertical nature of the map too, with hops and jumps. So each mage can hover on command, and that lasts for a few seconds and helps you get out of tight situations. You definitely feel really mobile in this game, and if the going gets tough, you can just run away from the battle, whereas in other games like this, if someone finds you, you're generally dead on sight. Here you've got a little bit more room to play with, and you can escape if necessary. At the moment, the matches only have about 42 players in them, meaning some games can feel a little bit empty, as the map is quite large. Some of the players have the abilities to quickly traverse the maps, for example, if you're an ice mage, you can spray the floor with ice and then use it to skate along. If you're a long way away from the circle, then sometimes hopping to get there can feel a little bit dull, and the map is fairly generic, although I do like the height element here. You know, it's not quite as tall as Hyperscape, but in battle, you're going to be flying around, dodging and using the skies to your advantage with your runes, and that's going to help you survive some of the more intense battles. 
There's a progression system in Spellbreak 2, so as you use your primary element, you're going to rank up a mastery level on that element to unlock passive perks, and there's missions like opening 15 chests or do a certain amount of fire damage, a system which is tried and tested amongst other battle royales. There's also talents too, so you've got mind, body and soul, and you've got 6 points to spend and the stronger talents cost more points. Strong talents also come with weaknesses too, so definitely spend those points wisely. As well as the progression side of things, there's also a vast cosmetic system, which is a given these days in a free-to-play game. There's costumes, badges and emotes and other things too, and at the moment there's nothing major in the stores that really makes me want to buy anything. I'm pretty happy with my bog-standard mage rags at this point. Unlike when you check out Fortnite's latest season, you can see Iron Man or Thor costumes in there. That had me instantly reaching for my wallet. If there was a Harry Potter tie in here, then I might be inclined to bust out the money, but until that time, I'm cool with the base cosmetics in this game. There is cross-progression in the game too, so if you start out on PC and you want to move to Nintendo Switch, then everything's going to follow you along, which is really nice. There's also cross-play as well, plus it's free to play, meaning there's always going to be plenty of people to play with. The game seems really solid as well, so probably benefiting from the two years of early access. I didn't have any performance issues or encounter any bugs, and the game feels really, really smooth. The graphics are bright and it's somewhere in between Fortnite and Breath of the Wild in terms of kind of graphical style and fidelity, and the player feedback is good when it comes to picking up gear. Chests open with a familiar endorphin rush, and the mage battles, especially when you're getting into the later parts of the game, are super fun and really chaotic. There was a moment in the game that made me shout out loud in disbelief the first time it happened, and that is in the exile system. So when you die, you turn into a little orb, and you have approximately about 100 seconds for your teammates to revive you. I was floating around, trying to find one of my teammates, and then suddenly another mage appeared, and seemed to grab hold of my orb in some kind of Ryu Hadouken manoeuvre. I wasn't really sure what was going on, but then my orb exploded like a piñata of loot. And at that moment, I realised I'd been exiled and exploded, and I was like... What? what? What are you doing? No! Don't, don't do that! It was a pretty funny moment, but watch out for that. You know, if you're in an orb state, definitely try to find a buddy or hide. So Spellbreak is instantly fun, it's accessible and easy to pick up. In the first few games they ease you in with bots, but it feels to me like this one is going to be a hard game to master. I like the unique take on the battle royale genre. It's third person, there's no guns, but it has all the action and the tension of a regular battle royale game. As with others before it, Spellbreak is entering into a crowded market, but it seems to have started really well, and given it's free to play across all platforms, I would say it's worth jumping in and giving it a try. Well that's it for my first impressions of Spellbreak, but next up, let's have a look at the all-platform charts. So at 10 this week we've got PGA Tour 2K 2021, that's down 8 places from last week's number 2. Number 9 this week we've got Ghost of Tsushima, that's down 3 places from last week's number 6. Number 8 this week is FIFA 20, that's down 1 place from last week's number 7. Number 7 this week is Grand Theft Auto 5, down 3 places from last week's number 4. Number 6 this week it's Minecraft, down 1 place from last week's number 5. Number 5 this week it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, are ever present in the top 10, down 2 places from last week's number 3. Number 4 this week it's Animal Crossing New Horizons, down from last week's number 1. And number 3 this week it's NBA 2K21, that is a new entry. And number 2 we've got another new entry, it's Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2. And at number 1 this week it's Marvel Avengers, so congrats to the team from Square and Crystal Dynamics for this week's number 1. Well that's it for the charts this week and let's have a look at what we've got coming out in the next few weeks. 
So in the next few weeks, you've got eFootball Pro Evolution Soccer 2021 that's coming out on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One and PC. That is on September the 15th. We've got Spelunky 2 coming out on PS4. We've got Medieval Dynasty. That one's coming out on PC and that one is coming out on September the 17th. So on the 18th, we've got a few games. So we've got Crisis Remastered coming out on PS4, Xbox One and PC. We've got Super Mario 3D All-Stars. That is coming out on Nintendo Switch and I've got my pre-order in for that one. And we've got WWE 2K Battlegrounds. That's coming out on the 18th too. We've got Hello Neighbor. That's coming out on Stadia. That's coming out on the 20th. Then on the 22nd, we've got 13 Sentinels, Aegis Rim, that's coming out on PS4. On the 23rd, we've got Unrallied, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. Then on the 24th, we've got Going Under, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC too. Another one on the 24th, we've got Little Big Workshop, that's coming out on Xbox One. And we've also got Roller Coaster Tycoon 3, the complete edition, coming out on Switch and PC. Then we've got Serious Sam 4, that's coming out on Stadia and PC. And we've got Tears of Avia, that's coming out on Xbox One and PC too. On the 25th we've got Bullet Age, that's coming out on Switch and PC. And we've got Mafia Definitive Edition, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Stadia and PC. We've also got Port Royale 4, so that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One and PC. And then finally on the 25th we've got Troll Hunters Defenders of Arcadia, coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. Well that's it for the charts this week and that is it for this week's episode 2 and if you want to get involved in the show do contact me through patreon.com forward slash this week in video games or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions, your comments and your video game stories, I'm always interested in hearing from you. I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and Instagram to search this week in video games on your favourite platform and join in that conversation. Well thanks so much for listening and for more This Week in Video Games content, subscribe on YouTube and share with a friend. To join our community, check out the Discord link in the description and you can follow me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, check out the other podcasts in the feed. Thanks again and I'll see you in the next one.